Jay Yi. Welcome to Winning with Data. Oh, thanks, Jake. And thanks, Alec. Glad to be here. Yeah, glad to have you here with my co-host, Alec Coughlin. Um, so I, I see, I know that this is audio only our podcast, but I, I see a couple of baseballs and a couple of tennis balls and the football behind you. It's clear that you are a sports fan. So I would love to learn what sports are you into? What got you into sports? And when you think about sports data, what do you think about? Uh, well, Jake, I think a, a shorter question would be what sports don't I follow or, or like? Because I think ever since I was an impressionable kid, I just latched on to sports from watching it on TV. Uh, I remember a time when you could watch uh, the World Series during the daytime, or I remember watching Muhammad Ali fight Joe Frazier on TV without having to worry about pay-per-view or things like that. And and so it, it was a lot more accessible when I was a kid. And so I, I, I was drawn into that world uh, because of the athletic skill that's involved in doing so. And having played a bunch of sports myself, I, I realized what the the effort and the unique abilities for these uh, athletes to do what they do. And so that's that's always uh, amazed me. And so, but I don't play a whole lot. I am now getting into more of the, the data side of it, trying to actually analyze sports from a an analytics perspective, utilizing uh, data science techniques. And so it's dovetailed nicely and with uh, my background, then uh, it's something that uh, I, I can speak hours and hours upon if, uh, if ever asked. So Two weeks ago, you hosted a winter session on football analytics, game situations, quarterback evaluation, fourth down decision making. I think we'd all love to know why the Niners are going to beat the Chiefs <laughs> and what brought you to that conclusion. Yeah, so th that was a very engaging and interesting um, session. Uh, Princeton holds a two weeks during their winter break where they allow students to take courses and all sorts of things, including like how to how to roll sushi or uh, taking trips like ski trips or things like that. And and so these are meant to be more uh, lighthearted, uh, casual workshops or sessions. And so I, I thought of the idea that hey, this would be a great time where I introduced the idea of analyzing football, mainly because the timing was right. It was right in the during the heart of the playoffs. And there's certainly no shortage of, especially in the sport of football, uh, data and the problems that everybody's trying to solve, whether it's from the strategic side or from the making decisions or just making sometimes predictions. And so an outcome of that was we, we built a prediction model uh, using Monte Carlo simulation to, to predict, try to predict the rest of the playoffs. And oddly enough, so far it's gone uh, correct. And so uh, if it continues that way, uh, the Niners will win the Super Bowl coming up. But, but it was fun, especially from the side of the students. Uh, they uh, got a chance to see how... Uh, data science and coding can sometimes be leveraged to use in situations such as uh, football or as, for that matter, any sports, because I don't think there's a sport now that's devoid of uh, using some type of analytics to help uh, improve or to make the best decisions. Yeah, when you think about what you've observed and been a part of uh, in, in what I would call like the mainstream analytics world, uh, and data science world, what do you get excited about in terms of what sports can do with machine learning? And what are some frontiers that you think it might not be exploring yet that they could? 
a lot of it, historically speaking, and you can see the changes that have happened. You know, for, for instance, I can point to uh, baseball, where back in my days, uh, when I followed it, you, you would never think of a power hitter batting like you know, early in the lineup, like, you know, first or second. And now that's become more commonplace because simply of the fact that uh, the more at-bats your, your best hitter gets, the, uh, the better the chances you'll produce more runs. Um, whereas in the past, uh, a lot of what's uh, built upon that cleanup position, trying to get that person up with uh, other runners on base and to ch- drive in more runs. But that that's only effective in the first inning because once the game gets going, uh, you, you never know uh, what scenario that uh, cleanup position will be in. Those things I'm fond of in terms of how data and uh, analytics had made that decision possible, and now it's become commonplace. And you see that in many aspects of other sports as well, um, including that football scenario about fourth downs, uh, you know, when to go for it and when not to go for it. Um, Vince Lombardi days, they, you know, they might have punted the ball on their opponent's side of the field sometimes just because it's, it was a safer thing to do. But so the idea of trying to evaluate the outcomes of certain scenarios and trying to derive the best expected value of those is something that obviously now has a lot of influence in, the, in, in any sport. And so as far as other topics or areas that haven't been touched, the best play to run, for instance, in football in a given situation. And I know that sounds a little daunting or even um, very difficult to pinpoint, but I feel like that's the uh, the asymptote, so to speak. You can get to a point where everything is optimized and the play that is chosen uh, reflects whatever uh, scenario, uh, situation that uh, the team is in. And then how this gets all analyzed within a machine learning environment um, and to be able to build optimal neural networks to try to see when decisions can be made, uh, what the outcomes of those decisions are. Those are things that I think it seems a little unfathomable to maybe reach, but that is sort of the target that I see as um, data science and machine learning can potentially solve. Coming back to the, the student involvements that we were, we were going over earlier, a model that we've had with universities and colleges that we've been working with at Gemini that has worked quite a lot has been going through academic departments where you have really high-powered data science students who can then service the athletics teams on campus. How do you see that model growing throughout the NCAA, um, especially as the landscape of college sports just changes so much year on year? Yeah, especially um, within the classroom. And, and I'm a big proponent of trying to bring more of this into the classroom. For one thing, at Princeton, uh, we do not have a dedicated course on something like this, like a sports analytics or sports data science course. And But we have courses in data science, and and we, we teach the content and material using what I would call sort of stale data or, or the, the standard data sets that you get with any um, like R, R packages. And uh, and that, that's been the, the way to go, uh, whether you teach it using, uh, you know, breaking speeds of cars or actual real world uh, football data. You, you learn the same thing. But uh, as far as I can tell from the student side, and I, I, being a big proponent of that, have seen that the students really 
latch on to those types of engaging, entertaining data that they themselves watch? And why not change the data so that the students will actually enjoy learning? I actually made it a whole themed course on Taylor Swift, um, being that she is actually in the spotlight now. And and the fact that she's also tied to football through her uh, boyfriend, Travis Kelsey, has given me a nice way to segue into the sports analytics uh, portion of that as well. So so the courses that I teach, it's easy to bring in that type of data. I, I don't know if there's an initiative or even um, an incentive for some instructors to go that route, but I've tried to do that in my past courses as well. And some might consider it a, a risky proposition just because uh, maybe some students don't like it. But I, my experience has been that uh, students really uh, love uh, data related to sports, to entertainment, uh, music, movies, what have you. Um, and as a consequence, they learn the material better. Uh, that I'm a, I have empirical evidence for and, um, and lots of uh, glowing uh, testimonials from students. As do I, Day. I'm going to jump in. Help me convince anyone out there that, that what you just said is a fact. I reached out to you in regards to my experience personally, where I learned a ton of stuff, you know, just after I graduated in a classroom environment and then was able to apply it, you know, out in the in sport media entertainment space and back and forth and so on and so forth. The students that, that get excited about this, tell us a little bit about why you think they get excited about it and how it can potentially impact their learning and learning curve. Because I personally can share my examples for sure, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about the reactions that you're getting from various students about this idea and how far in they're leaning because, you know, it's exciting. I will actually start with my own daughter. I have a eight-year-old daughter and uh, when she was first starting to learn uh, basic arithmetic you know adding and subtracting numbers i actually built an app uh, so that she can uh, play it on an ipad where it wasn't just a standard uh, calculator or anything where it tests her ability to add or subtract numbers but i i included uh, images of cartoon characters because that's what she loves i mean she I mean, if she had her way she would watch uh, these cartoons all day but by putting that in there, it immediately drew her to that. And she, after a while, didn't even realize that she was learning basic arithmetic because of the fact that she saw, you know, images of Bluey, of Dora the Explorer. like, And these are images or characters that she associated with and enjoyed. And so that connection is something that um, uh, I can just immediately see. But obviously, uh, the, the students, uh, especially college students, are way beyond that. I'll give one other example, too, from the movie, uh, The Sound of Music. It's basically uh, a way for the children to learn music, but uh, they would sing a song to try to learn the notes and then put the words to the notes. And then all of a sudden, now they're um, you know, able to perform and sing and all that. Um, and so the method by which you can deliver or teach something to me has been paramount in the way I go about it. Um, I also taught at Columbia prior to Princeton, and um, I brought that same uh, style in there. And, and it's from actually that experience where I have plenty of evidence that the students really appreciate that. Um, we, we will, I'll teach a course on databases, and which means we can use any data source, but 
that was the perfect time to introduce these data sources on sports. Um, every semester, I you know built databases, uh, whether it was the NBA, NFL, and we we have we got a chance to analyze that data. Uh, but sometimes some of the students didn't even realize that they're learning because of the fact that hey, that this is something that I enjoy. You never know this this might be a growing thing that happens in Princeton or elsewhere. But um, I'm I'm definitely uh, wanting to push that forward. I would love to learn what running track taught you about data or or what learning data made you think about your track career. I see that you're a 110 meter hurdler, which is pretty cool. Um, I don't know if you still follow the event, but when I was at Florida State, I got to coach Trey Cunningham, his freshman oh, yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I taught that kid how to deadlift and power clean, and then he went way beyond anything I could offer him and, and won an NCAA title too and a world championship silver medal last summer. That's that's so cool. I didn't, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, he was just incredibly gifted. He had just had a world junior title right before I met him. So uh, I think he would do whatever he sought out to do all on his own in this world. Really an incredible worker. But it's an amazing event because people like fall on their face all the time and have to get up and just try it again. Um but you were also in the Centennial Conference. I was at what you would know as Western Maryland College, is now McDaniel College, wrestling and playing lacrosse, which I actually didn't notice the stick because it's right behind you until you were here a few minutes ago. So that is a beautiful sport. So ramble finished. I'd love to learn what did track and field teach you about your data career and, and, and what do you reflect back on now that you know what you know? Yeah, and, and there's actually two events. It was the 110-meter hurdles and then the 400-meter hurdles, which are two different events. Most runners, especially at the high school level, ran both of those just because you know how to hurdle, might as well just, you know, continue on. But they they have such different training requirements to, to be good at because the 400 has a lot of endurance, uh, obviously, uh, built into that where just being able to survive and make it toward the end. But the hurdles by itself uh, is one that requires a very high level of technical skill to make, and you can probably associate with that if you uh, coach Trey, that imagine a sport where uh, like, for instance, like the high jump or long jump, where you're just trying to maximize whatever muscle output that you want to do. But with the hurdles, it was just about getting over the hurdles with the minimal amount of clearance as possible without hitting it, because obviously the consequences of hitting it can slow you down. But that idea of trying to optimize something where uh, you're not just trying to push something to the maximum, like 100 meters where you're just you know, going all out. Um, and then also trying to fit in three steps in between each hurdles. Those are things that I've learned that as a rule, you have these constraints. Well, as a, any event or a problem, you have constraints about what you can do. And then how do you maximize that potential through those constraints? And so I find the hurdles very intriguing in that in that respect. I find the hurdles very intriguing in that in that respect. Um, and then, as I said, the 400 meter hurdle, <laughs> you throw in the component where nobody wants to do, run that last hundred on that um, backstretch because you're all gassed out and just trying to survive. But but what what it has taught me, obviously. I've heard Arnold Schwarzenegger say this a lot, but no pain, no gain type of uh, situation where you're not going to get better unless you put that effort in there. Um, it's, and uh, even with the hurdles, you can study the the techniques and everything until um, you're blue in the face. But you, you need to put in your uh, work as far as even the, the lifting as well as the uh, speed workouts and track work and all that. And so 
the a data scientists or anybody who wants to go in that field. Um, uh, it's not a linear path when that you just learn just a series of courses or skills. Um, uh, you need to involve yourself in many different scenarios or problem situations and try to figure out the best optimal solutions for those. And so that has governed many things I do in my lifetime. But yeah, it's, I guess, without the effort, um, it definitely won't just come to you. And so once in a while, a basketball player will shoot a three-pointer and it just, it just goes in. You know, I'm I'm not the best basketball player, but I'll sink a three every now and then. And <laughs> it just happens. And it's I don't know if anybody can just run onto the field and clear 10 hurdles in 110 meters <laughs> uh, without that practice and the, uh, uh, the level of effort. I think the most impressive thing I've ever seen in a field of competition in any sport in my career was the 2018 NCAA East Regionals in Tampa. Sydney McLaughlin was so far ahead that she just kind of stopped paying attention and fell over the third hurdle right in front of me, 10 feet away, got up and still won by about 10 meters. That reminds me of my favorite movie, which is Chariots of Fire, if you ever watched that movie. But there, there was a scene in that movie where one of the main characters, Eric Liddell, falls in like a 200-meter race and somehow gets up and <laughs> still uh, beats everyone. But that movie is actually about the Paris Olympics back in 1924, so it's the 100th anniversary. And you'll hear about that movie as the uh, Olympics ha uh, comes up because of its importance and all that. And and the other, the fact that it won the Academy Award for Best Picture, nobody actually expected that. And I don't know if you also know that there's a tie-in with um, Princess Diana with that movie because the uh, producer, uh, Dodi Fayed, was um, her boyfriend and the, the person that died in the car with her. Uh, so a lot of things uh, you'll find that in life are tied together. And who would have thought that, you know, Taylor Swift and data science was a match, but uh, I'm, I'm slowly making that happen. And one of the, the biggest uh, signs of that is uh, I've, I've gotten many emails over the last week asking if they can switch into my course because they found out through their friends that, you know, they're, they're, they're learning Taylor Swift in, uh, in a Princeton class, which <laughs> is something that you might not have thought of. I have to ask, how could the model predict the 49ers yeah you're going against the taylor swift you know crew and, and the, i mean how do you reconcile that i don't i don't understand I'm confused that was actually not a component of the model i just uh what did factor into it was uh past performance and the fact that just on paper the niners had too many weapons i feel uh, but you never know it's just one game very true. And I got to ask, because it's the New York and me and uh, the Columbia, and we've got Manhattan and Brooklyn and Queens, top restaurant or two that we might not be aware of that we should be aware of for all of us uh, New Yorkers or transplants next time we're back in New York. What's what's a restaurant or two that we should be thinking about and putting on the list next time we're in the city collectively? Eddie Bro. Just from my Korean heritage, um, there's that one block in Midtown called Koreatown, which is on 32nd Street. And it's just one block, but they must have like uh, 30 or 40 restaurants uh, crammed in there. Um, and you can al I can almost say just kind of pick anyone, but um, my go-to has been this uh, one restaurant called Wonjo. It's spelled W-O-N-J-O. Um, if you like Korean barbecue, 
and I, I consider myself actually a, a master chef in Korean barbecue. If you, if <laughs> I, I'd invite you to my house, uh, but they cook their meat with actual charcoal as opposed to all the other places where they use gas because uh, it's a lot, a lot more convenient. And to me, that makes a huge difference. And so, if yeah, that's my one one place that I would recommend. We're getting dinner there. You, me, and Jake. Next time we're going to see, we go yeah. one Joe and a hundred percent. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I, I once met um, Tiki Barber in that restaurant. Um, I think he had a, um, an Asian wife, and so he already likes uh, maybe that cuisine. But uh, just to meet him there, that also kind of uh, reminds me that, uh, you know, that's a special place. <laughs> well, he knows about charcoal and, let's say, and the flavor that brings, right? We're all, yeah, he's no dummy. I can imagine Tiki putting back the kimchi. I could see yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Daegi, thank you so much for coming on Winning with Data. We'll have to do this again soon. Oh, yeah, definitely. Anytime. Anytime.